Malia Jones. You're an assistant scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory. That's right. All right. And you're an expert on population health science. Yes. I uh, study epidemics. You wrote, um, was it an email that you wrote or a letter that you wrote that went viral? Uh, It's called uh, What I Think About COVID-19 This Morning that was shared on Facebook uh, like 20,000 plus times. Yeah. um, The, so I study epidemics. I don't, normally study coronaviruses, but I, I, uh, typically I study measles and uh, a little bit influenza and some other infectious diseases. And so I was watching this COVID-19, uh, situation unfold. And when I noticed that it was starting to go worldwide, I wrote this email that was really intended for my friends and family, just my thoughts on, on what we were about to start seeing. And, um, that email, somebody asked me to post it on Facebook so they could share it, and it ended up going viral on Facebook. And I haven't actually looked lately. Is it up to 200,000 shares? It had a lot of shares. Oh, wow. And so, I yeah. think reached a lot of people. And so, um, and then eventually uh, some people, n- reporters took notice of it, and it was republished in as an editorial, uh, an op-ed in several newspapers, including USA Today National. So it got a lot of readers. Wow. Uh, so it went viral. Um, it's very important, especially now. And I said 20,000, but it was up to 200,000 it's up to? Oh, I don't know. How yeah, yeah, yeah. The last the time I actually looked at it was about a week ago, and it was like 90,000. Oh, wow. Uh, I could see why. There's a lot of good information in that if people want to check it out. Um, on your bio page, people can read it. It's experts.news.wisc.edu, and you can uh, click to it there and and read it. I know you're doing some updates to it. Um, I'm not sure if you still are. Things are changing pretty rapidly, but uh, yeah, things are changing pretty fast. So I wrote that on March 5th, which is when we really started to take note that there were a a rising number of cases and some spots with community transmission in the United States. And uh, Europe was starting to see quite a few cases at that point. So, uh, and we had had an ongoing situation in uh, South Korea and Iran by then already. So yeah, things have changed quite a bit in the last uh, 15 days. And I've done a few updates to it, uh, in other platforms. I'm not actually updating that particular document, but I've been releasing more more of my assessment of the situation as it unfolds. I did a podcast the other day and I referred to this as um, hysteria in the uh, the person I was interviewing was on the East Coast and I was just wondering how things were there. Was that um, did I misspeak by by calling it that? I mean, what is what is happening now like Everything is shut down. The borders are shut down. Businesses are shut down. Um, you know, people are freaking out. Like hourly wage workers that can't work in small businesses that are, you know, have to close their doors. Um, is this an appropriate response to what's happening? Um, well, I think whether it's an appropriate response really depends on your assessment of what's important. And the fact is, we don't have any good options right now. We are in a situation where, uh, you know, the worst case scenario in the United States in terms of who 
could get very sick and what could happen to our healthcare system is really dire. I mean, you, you get to a pretty dark place very quickly if you just do some simple math on how many people could end up sick and how much capacity our hospitals have to deal with that. Uh, and that's setting aside the number of deaths. I mean, I think a conservative estimate for how many people could die if we don't take some pretty drastic measures is, is in the millions in the United wow. States. In the United States alone? Yes. Wow. So, so we have to do something uh, because that's, I really don't think that's an acceptable outcome for anyone, you know, I, and, but I do, I, I am really sensitive to the harm that these measures are doing to small businesses and, and wage earners and all the people in the service industry who are out of work right now. Um, not to mention people who are in even more vulnerable social positions, you know, people who are homeless and in prison settings and um, kids who rely on school for their meals. Mm -hmm. This is doing damage. You know, I, I don't think there's any denying that. So, yeah, we're, we don't have any good options here. How does this differ than the flu? I mean, this is, a, is it a, it's a type of flu, but, but it's like it a flu. It is not a type of oh, flu. Oh, okay. It's a completely different family of viruses. So influenza viruses, there's, but there are lots of different strains of influenza virus that circulate in the United States every winter. Um, and also a little bit in the summer, there are also, um, what we call novel flu strains. So that's, that's something that is not the usual seasonal flu, something new. The last one we had like that was the H1N1 swine flu yeah. pandemic in 2009. Um, and we, and we've also seen avian flu outbreaks and other new influenza strains, new influenza strains are really dangerous because influenza, um, spreads easily and, and can kill a lot of people. Even seasonal flu is really dangerous. You know, a lot of people have pointed out, including our president, that more people die of influenza every year in the United States than, uh, have died in this uh, coronavirus pandemic. But the, the key difference is it's more people have died in the United States from flu so far. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen this pandemic unfold completely yet. And the risk, if we let it go uncontrolled, is much worse than the flu. Much, much worse than the flu. Orders of magnitude worse. So, so a few points here. The differences between this and the flu. First of all, it's not the flu. It's a, it's a completely different strain of virus. Um, coronaviruses are a whole family of virus viruses. They circulate in human populations and animal populations all over the world. Some of them don't even make their hosts feel sick. Um, and there are some coronaviruses that we, we deal with all the time. Uh, this is a new one. And so what we think happened was that it was probably circulating in some animal population in China, uh, may or may not have made those animals sick. Um, we don't, we don't know. We don't want, know what animal it was. And sometime around last fall, it mutated a little bit. It changed a little bit. And, and that change made it very, very good at infecting humans for the first time. And so this is a new variant on some ancestor virus 
that was circulating somewhere, uh, and it's brand new to the human population. So that makes it a lot worse than the flu because there are 7.7 billion people on Earth who have no immunity to this at all. Most of us have some immunity to influenza strains because we've had the flu before or we've had a flu shot, but no one has immunity to this. And so there's just a lot more people who could be infected than could be infected with flu, even under terrible circumstances. It's also more contagious than the flu. It's spreading way faster uh, than, than we might expect for a flu pandemic. It's, it's just really good at infecting people. And uh, it's, it's uh, death rate is higher than the flu. So more people who get it actually end up in the hospital and die of it than as compared to influenza. You mentioned people might have it and not even know it. Um, it yeah. And so it doesn't develop oh, symptoms. I'm sorry. There's one more important point I need to yeah. make about how it's different from the flu. The flu, we have a vaccine for the flu and we have a treatment, Tamiflu. So uh, and we have neither of those here. There's no vaccine and there's no treatment for it. And so uh, dealing with the outcomes is way harder. The H1N1 swine flu pandemic, we were able to control successfully because we were able to, we had already had a flu vaccine and we were able to roll out a vaccine really, really quickly and get people tested really, really quickly for that. And so we, the H1N1 pandemic was successfully controlled. And I don't think there's any real hope of that happening here. Is there, uh, when do you estimate a, a vaccine might be rolled out? Is it a year? So they've already a year started and clinical trials for vaccine, but the, the clinical trial process is really extensive. It, it takes quite a while. And so it, it'll be, you know, optimistically, it would be at least a year and probably more. And that would be everybody getting vaccinated or that would be just people that, you know, they it can't will depend man, man, on, the, it. Um, on how it's licensed and what populations it's recommended for. I, you know, uh, the, for example, pneumonia vaccine is only recommended for people who are at high risk of pneumonia, mm-hmm. uh, mostly older people, but a few other subgroups. Um, it, it depends on the vaccine. I think it's just too early to answer that question, really. Mm. But people obviously are are working actively to to get that in motion, to get that out. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen the scientific community respond so quickly to a public health crisis. It's really impressive. What is So there's already clinical trials for a vaccine. I think you talked about it uh, uh, um, a little bit already, but what's so insidious about this particular strain that it's just foreign to us that it's new that we're just unprepared to deal with it yeah so it's new as i mentioned so there there's just a huge pool of people who are susceptible to it and it's also really good at spreading and uh, it's a little unclear at this time i mean this is so new that New information literally comes out every single day, and there there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Um, but it seems like it's just it's really really good at getting people infected. Uh, the The rate of new infections per day is very high. Uh, so especially for a disease that is not airborne, it's it's droplet transmission. So you really have to be in pretty close contact with someone to get it from them. Um, 
So, yeah, it's just exceeding expectations in terms of uh, how contagious the disease is. And I think, so the newest evidence this week suggests that a lot of people have infection but don't have any symptoms. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going And they're still contagious. Mm. So that's one of the reasons. People are walking around not knowing that they have it and spreading it pretty efficiently. And that's predominantly young people and children that are... I understand are are not developing symptoms. So yeah, it seems like I don't think we know for sure yet whether it's young people who are having a lot of these asymptomatic cases and then spreading it. But we can kind of infer that just from what we know about other diseases, um, and from what we see in terms of the 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 who gets a really serious symptomatic case. So young people do not generally get a very severe case but we think they're probably infected uh and spreading it around a lot which is why schools are closed china there was a a news article today that china is reporting i believe zero or near zero cases or uh, transmissions at this time is that believable do you think that's happening and uh will that happen here at some i mean hopefully at some point but so whether it's credible or not, I really couldn't guess. Yeah. Um, I hope that, that I hope it's true. In general, uh, China has been pretty cooperative during this pandemic, I think, in terms of sharing information. But it's it's very hard to know without being in you know on the inside there with how much of of in the information that's coming out is accurate. Uh, that's the case everywhere too. That's not limited to China. You know, every, every, uh, sovereign nation is reporting their numbers to WHO. And uh, I don't think there's any way to verify whether they're true. Um, but in the interest of, of even their own self-interest, you would hope that China would be, uh, reporting correct information. So, um, will that happen here at some point? Yes, that will happen here at some point, I hope. Um, I think the question you're getting at is how long is this going to go on? Yeah. Uh, if you boil it down, that's. I think that's the question everyone's wondering. So, I don't know what it's like where you are. Where are you, by the way? Uh, Los Angeles. Oh, Okay. I lived in Los Angeles for 17 years before mm. I moved to Wisconsin. So I have a lot of connections there. And uh, I know everything is completely shut down. Yes. It's a pretty weird situation. Uh, truly, this is it's unprecedented. Uh, the world has never faced anything like this before. And I don't know if there's any good prediction of how long it'll go on. But I will say that in my assessment of the situation... Um, a few things. One, it's really important that uh, the next couple of weeks are really critical. We need to stop uh, all those asymptomatic cases that are wandering around out there and we have no idea who they are. They need to go home Mm -hmm. and stay there. And since no one knows whether I have it or you have it or your mom has it or your child has it, that means everybody has to go home. Right. And, and really stay there. So that's this social distancing thing there. There's not another way at this time to stop the epidemic from spreading exponentially. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And if everybody were to cooperate and actually do that, even the people who are low risk and the people who are feeling fine but could be carrying the disease, then, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, we would start to see case counts going down because in a couple of weeks, those cases, those asymptomatic cases would resolve and wouldn't be passing it on anymore. Uh, in Taiwan, which has a very dense population, mostly in a big city settings, uh, and has a ton of travel between uh, there and China. So they're really high risk to have a huge problem. They implemented what we would consider draconian social distancing measures. Mm. They just made everybody go home and stay there. And they have had almost no cases per population. So we know from observing what happened there that that that, that could work. We don't live in Taiwan. We live in the United States of America and... People are free to ignore instructions here. So do I really think we'll start to see case counts go down in two or three weeks? Eh, I don't know. The longer, the, the less firm we are about the social distancing, the longer this will drag out. Um, so the that- real route to getting out of the position we're in now is to get tons and tons of testing. We really need to know who has it. And then only the people who have it need to be isolated, right? That means the rest of us can go back to our daily lives. And so until it's basically until we get testing and, and we need a ton of tests. I mean, we, we, from a public health perspective, it would be best if we just tested literally every person. So 327 million tests, that's what we need to get out of the position we're in. So that's one of the things I, I think were they doing in China forced quarantines they were just kind of picking people up and quarantining them and so maybe that's not that we would ever do that here but that's possibly one of the reasons or could seems like one of the reasons that it went down so quickly because they there was no option people could not go out and go people spring were not breaking allowed to go on the out. beach yep, or whatever that's the case and uh, the United States have ne- has never implemented a widespread forced quarantine. That's that's considered a. I mean, there there's actually a lot of interesting ethical debate within public health about whether that's even uh, possible in this country. Uh, it, just in general, not not with respect to this pandemic that I've heard of so far. So, and that's because you know we we're we don't have a, an authoritarian. Uh, style government like mm-hmm. China or Taiwan. Um, that's just, that's not a, a right that our government has ever invoked before. And so uh, we know it works because we've seen it, it work elsewhere. Whether we could do that, I, I don't really think we could. I don't know. Was this um, coronavirus something that the scientific community and the health community was anticipating was going to happen at some point in time that there was going to be something like this that was going to sort of devastate the world? Yeah. The more the world becomes a global society, the more connections we have with each other through population density and urbanization and commercial travel all around the world, the more likely a pandemic like this becomes. And yeah, nobody in public health is surprised that there's a, that a pandemic happened. Um, 
we faced a few sort of close calls in the last 20 years. Uh, there was the SARS outbreak that happened in Southeast Asia in 2003. That one is, it was actually a, a genetic cousin to this disease uh, and had in some ways very similar characteristics. In fact, a lot of what we know in terms of how to deal with this comes from the SARS outbreak. SARS was effectively contained. Uh, and so, uh, so we didn't have a global pandemic there, but, but there, I don't know if you remember that time, but there was a lot of fear that we would have a pandemic. Mm -hmm. This time we failed to contain it and we, we've got a pandemic on our hands. So, um, yeah, public health has known this is coming since the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. There are whole classes on it when you go to public health school. Do you, are we? It doesn't seem like we're prepared, though. So we knew it was coming, but we we seem to be underprepared in terms of even things like masks and you know medicines and quarantine uh, you know sort mm -hmm. of uh, requirements or standards or whatever. There's no um, preparation necessary in necessary preparation in place. You know, this is so I, I, I'm going to agree with you. It feels like we aren't prepared. And but I'll qualify that a little bit. The world is now even though we kind of knew this was coming, the world has never faced this before. Mm. So if it looks like we're doing it wrong, that's why, you know, nobody's never, ever done this before. I've never experienced anything like this <laughs> in my life. No one has. Yeah. I mean, no, no one ha ever has. So so I think some of the fumbling has to do with that. Uh, just you know, we can kind of do some thought experiments and, and imagine how this would play out, but getting it in play, getting everything in place in advance for something that we don't exactly know what it's going to look like because nobody's ever seen it before, uh, is, is really challenging. And yeah, I think we, you know, there have been some missteps for sure. The good news, I suppose, is that this could have been a lot worse, uh, pandemic novel pandemic influenza is the real zombie apocalypse scenario that that kills like 60% of the population in some estimates oh my God. billions of people so this is a good practice run for another pandemic that everybody's been worrying about for a hundred years novel pandemic influenza um, and I think we'll learn I mean we've certainly we're already learning some important lessons about how to prepare for something like that and how to have national stockpiles of supplies and have emergency response plans in place. Um, I will say that well, there are emergency response plans written up and people are implementing them to the best of their ability. The folks that I know at the state and national level in emergency response are working their tails off and doing what they can. And I am really gratified to see how seriously people are taking this social distancing thing, even though I know it is uh, really, really hard and it, and even devastating for some families. Yeah, it's, it could be, you know, daunting to, to sit indoors uh, for extended periods of time, but it's necessary right now. Yes, it is, unfortunately. Uh, you don't actually have to be indoors. You just okay. have to be not too close to other people. Mm. So feel free to walk your dog outside. Or go hiking just, or Or go hiking, like go to the park with a picnic, um, you know, go for a bike ride. Just don't do it with other people. 
outside your pod. I'm trying to use this pod <laughs> concept. Um, did China know about this in November, December? I mean, if they did, could they, if they told, did they drop the ball on telling everyone? Or and were there maybe undetected cases here in the U.S. that we just didn't know about? Could we have kind so, of nipped it in the bud a little sooner? Yeah. So there. So so the way it, it seems to have unfolded in China, from my read of the situation, is that uh, in Wuhan, which is a very large city in China, uh, there was a doctor there who was treating people with uh, with acute respiratory failure that looked like pneumonia, but they were flu negative. So it looked like the flu, but they weren't positive for flu when they tested them for flu. And there were a lot of them, more than you'd expect with flu. And so he kind of sounded the alarm and said, hey, there's something going on here. Uh, alerted the, the uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, who alerted the general um Public. I mean, WHO makes public announcements about about new, uh, new or unknown infectious diseases every day, and so the word got out when essentially when this doctor identified a, an unusual pattern of hospital cases in happening in Wuhan. Uh, that doctor actually caught COVID nineteen and died of it, unfortunately. Oh wow! I didn't um, know that because he was in really close contact with these patients. So did they alert people in a timely way? I, you know, I, I don't know that we have enough information, um, to answer that definitively yet. Certainly. I mean, I think that doctor was in some ways pretty heroic to, to be, to notice it and, and let, uh, everyone know and Mm. get the word out. The containment did fail. You know, even after this was identified as something new, um, but I think that might be because it's just it spreads so fast. It's really hard to get it under control because it, it's not like it. You don't have a lot of time. You know, somebody gets infected, somebody gets exposed, and then before you even know you're sick, two days later, you could be spreading it to lots of other people. Mm. And so it's just uh, it's a tricky one in terms of containment. Uh, there was another part to your question. Now I forgot it. Uh, yeah, I was just curious uh, because it, it seemed to be traced back to like November, December time period. So yeah. if, if we... Oh, you asked me if there were undetected cases here in the United States. Yes. I don't really think so because this disease looks clinically a little... Well, clinically it looks similar to the flu, except you wouldn't be testing positive for flu. Uh, but from an epidemiology perspective, you would we would have seen a spike in hospitalizations hmm. for respiratory failure that were flu negative long before now, if this had been circulating in the United States population a, a long time ago. So I don't really think so. I don't really think that we've all been dealing with this for uh, four months already, because we would have already seen, we would have already been in the position Italy is currently in. Is it something that we we kind of talked about it a little bit, but we can expect as a species, just as humans, that this is cycl- like cyclical, that's going to happen every however many, 50, 100, maybe even less years? You mean a pandemic or yes. this particular virus? Not this particular virus, but something like this or uh, something worse. 
So the more, as I said, the more population we have on Earth and the closer contact we have with each other and the more intermeshed those contacts are, um, you know, when we move from, when we take a trip to Australia for vacation, we move all of our germs along with us to Australia. And there was a, a time in the recent past when that kind of human movement didn't happen, right? It certainly didn't happen on a on a 12-hour direct flight. Yeah. If you wanted to get to Australia, you'd have to get on a boat and it would take, take you forever. weeks to get there. So that, that makes it a lot harder for a virus to move from North America to Australia, right? Um, so the more people we have, the closer contact we're in, and the more of those kind of matrix links we have with one another, the more likely something like this becomes. And so, yes, I do think, you know, this isn't the last pandemic we'll ever see. Wow. And um, there's really, I mean, just everyday living, traveling, that kind of thing. That's, you know, eventually, you know, we'll get back to that. So this, there's no way to really deter that. That's just sort of inevitable. Yep. It is inevitable. Um, I think one of the bright spots here is that um, we have this other global health crisis uh, that is also happening at the same time, that whole global warming thing. And uh, we also need to take urgent action on that front. And one of the things we're seeing as society shuts down, as human movement shuts down, is that the environment actually recovers pretty quickly. I don't know if you've seen the air monitor data from Los Angeles. I didn't, but I saw an image of, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what city it was in China. I didn't know how accurate that picture was, but it seemed like when everything shut down, the smog clouds dis yeah. dissipated. So we're seeing all these posts of, you know, the Venice canals look clean for the first time in 50 years. And you can see the fish and the dolphins swimming in the canals. And, um, I saw a post on Twitter yesterday that showed the the air monitor, air quality monitor data for Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And the air quality monitors there are taking pollution readings that are lower than they have ever seen since the air mo air quality monitors were put up. Wow. They're estimating air quality is better than it's been like since Los Angeles became a real city. Um, and I, I hope that uh, we can sort of take the opportunity here to rethink some of our usual behaviors and our norms around driving to work every day instead of telecommuting, um, you know, taking unnecessary flights and so forth, and uh, take some steps towards resolving that other crisis we've got on our hands at the same time. You know, I think the solution in some ways is right in front of us. It's obviously not to close human society permanently, but I think we could make some real progress if we took a few lessons from the kinds of activities we're being forced to do right now. So you think it's almost like Mother Nature created this in a sense to heal itself? Is that I don't <laughs> think that there was any intention to yeah. it. It's, you know, it's I think it's a, I'm a scientist, so yeah, yeah. I, I believe in coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> Randomness is a powerful force. But I think what we're observing strongly suggests that we could 
make a dent in the environment. I mean, we have made a dent in the environment and that if we changed our behaviors, uh, mother nature would self-correct. I'll tell you one thing, just even on a local, like human level, um, it, it makes me more aware of how much like toilet paper I use, like, cause now everyone's freaking out about toilet paper. They can't get it in <laughs> the, the stores or, you know, hand towel, and anything like that, food, you know what I mean? I, I've just been yeah. more, con- we've, we've been more conscious here of how much of that we're using. And also I think where it comes from, I've been a lot more aware of where my stuff comes from. Um, because it, a lot of the things that we use every day come, come from China mm-hmm. and China has been unable to deliver those services for the last few months. And so that's why we're seeing disruptions that's why there aren't enough masks because we can't order any. Uh, the factory's closed, right? I I don't actually know, but I also wonder if that's part of the holdup on getting testing rolled out. Is that we rely on China for a lot of the equipment and supplies to make medical equipment? What's an ideal scenario if every like municipality has like a little testing tent or something where people can go to? Do we need to see more of that? To make it more yeah, what accessible. we've seen, one of the good models that we have seen is in South Korea, they did drive-through testing. And I know some parts of the United States are already offering that. So you can uh, sort of like drive-through pharmacy, you can drive up uh, or walk into some kind of testing center uh, where they're prepared to protect the employees. They're prepared to protect themselves against exposure and get a rapid test for free. Uh, you know, the results would come back to you right away and then you would know whether you had it or you didn't have it. And then those of us who are negative, excuse me, who are negative could go back to work. Mm. And okay, so we'd be able to... But that needs to be really accessible and really widely available and free. That's that's essential, right? We can't have we can't have obstacles to everybody getting tested. Then people won't be able to do it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I just kind of assumed it would be free. I didn't really think about that. I, I would imagine at this well, point it would be free. There were some, I don't know how much truth there was to them, but a, a couple a week or two ago, there were some rumors that people were getting bills from their insurance for, for COVID-19 tests. Oh, wow. um, Congress yesterday passed a bill uh, for coronavirus relief that, and one of the provisions is free testing. So I hope that comes to be the case. Yeah, that makes a that lot really- happen that's necessary so mm. it makes a lot of sense what you're saying about then the healthy people can get back to work because i think at some point there has to be a balance right between being quarantined but also getting uh some you know people back to work especially the people that work in health fields and you yeah. know research fields and so they could you know we could help the people that are sick and replenish food and all that stuff yeah absolutely i mean we we need to Nobody thinks this is a good long-term solution. Just go home and stay there. Can't that that can't happen forever. It, and the longer it goes on, the more damage we've done to our economy and to families, um, and especially to those most vulnerable groups. And I think everybody is really sensitive to that and wants this to end quickly. And that's why we. Uh, that's why the the call the message. Uh, has been so broadly that social distancing is you have to be firm and uh, and everybody has to cooperate. I mean, it's it's inherently a community project, you know. So even well people, even um, 
even people who are low risk really have to participate or this will drag on forever. It will, it will be, you know, the longer it goes, the worse it gets. And the, the worse we do the social distancing phase, the more, the longer it will take. Was that a term that always existed, social distancing, or is this something that was created for this specifically? That's the, it's a term that's always existed. And I think it's just that the general public just got their first glimpse of it. Similar to my, I call myself, I'm a social epidemiologist. I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure nobody has ever heard of a social epidemiologist <laughs> before, like last week. <laughs> yes. And now you're in the forefront. What do you do on a, on a daily basis, like research wise, and you're just studying yeah, viruses? What I normally do is I study people who don't want to vaccinate their kids mm. and, and the way that they cluster in space together, the way that they, uh, they have, a t people who don't want to vaccinate their kids have a tendency to, to send their kids to the same schools. And I study how much extra risk of an epidemic that clustering produces. So what I normally do is study vaccines and, uh, or more specifically, people's uptake of vaccines and how they are located on a map. And like I said, you know, I don't normally study coronaviruses. Yeah. There's no vaccine for coronaviruses. So that's well outside my specific wheelhouse but um the people who study coronaviruses and develop vaccines are super busy right now so they're not they're not talking to you <laughs> the uh the aversion to the vaccine is that it, it creates other adverse side effects that people don't that are i'm not sure if those side effects have been proven like autism people have said you know that they've linked that to vaccines in some way i'm not i don't know the science behind it but yeah, so is that well, the... so I do, um, and I, I'll tell you, vaccines do not cause autism. Mm -hmm. There's very few things in in science that you could be as firm on as that thing. It's really been studied and studied and studied, and there is not a link there. Uh, people also express concerns about vaccinating their kids because they say um, they worry about the ingredients in the vaccines, that they're too toxic or that they contain preservatives. Um, some other concerns are that it's somehow too much for your child's immune system to deal with. There are too many vaccines or they're too close together. Um, so those are a few of the concerns that people express. Um, you know, vaccines are... Some people do have a, a adverse reaction to vaccines in extremely rare cases. Those reactions are very serious. And I think that one of the things people forget about when they're thinking about the risk of giving their child a vaccine is that there are also risks of not giving your child a vaccine. And, and those on the balance are a lot more serious. One in a thousand kids who gets measles dies. Mm. And so not giving your child the measles vaccine, you have to balance the risk that they're going to get measles against the risk that the, of the vaccine. Are there incidents like just came to mind, like with the flu, like people get the flu shot and then develop the flu. Does that happen or is that just uh That does happen. Yeah. Flu is really tricky to develop a vaccine for because it's very messy. Uh, flu is a very messy replicator. So viruses, what they do is they get into your body and they invade a cell and then they take over the cell's DNA replicator machinery mm -hmm. and force it 
force your cells to make copies of itself instead of doing what they normally do. Okay, I think I understand. Okay, so the vaccine gets in there. I'm sorry, the the um, virus gets in there and takes over the the DNA uh, machine and makes copies of the vac of the virus instead of of whatever it's the cell it's normally supposed to do. Um, and for flu, when it makes all those copies, it t- it makes a lot of mistakes. It's just really messy, and so flu. Uh, every year experiences what's called genetic drift. And so it changes over time. Kind of like playing the game telephone. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you whisper something in your neighbor's ear and then your neighbor might hear it slightly incorrectly and pass it along. Flu works a little like that. So as it replicates, it, it makes a lot of mistakes. And uh, that means that when we're developing next year's flu vaccine, where scientists are actually right now deciding what next winter's flu vaccine should include, they have to guess what the circulating strains are going to be based on modeling data and you know some information that they get. And some years, the guess is better than others. And it's just sort of random chance based on what happens with flu itself over the, the next nine months. Um, but I will also say that the flu vaccine, even if it's not a very good flu vaccine, it still provides you with some immunity. So people who've been vaccinated and get flu anyway are very unlikely to die of it. People who they get a less serious case, right? People who are not vaccinated for, for flu are, uh, more likely to die when they get flu. So even if you still get the flu, you're probably not going to die of the flu. So you should still get your vaccine. Uh, there's been some promising work on a universal flu vaccine that would fix this problem, but I'd, it's not available yet. Does the, the situation we're facing now with COVID-19 um, make the case for vaccines or, or reinforce the case for vaccines, in your opinion? In general? Yeah. Well, um, Yes. We, so if we had no vaccines or if people rejected vaccines on a really widespread basis, we would have pandemics all the time. We would have pandemic measles and pandemic mumps and pandemic pertussis and pandemic um, smallpox and pandemic polio. It would be horrible. <laughs> so, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you don't like social distancing, then... <laughs> <laughs> then uh, <laughs> get your vaccines, I guess. And I'm watching myself in the camera and I'm touching my face, but uh, I can do that because yeah. I'm social distancing. I know, I know. <laughs> I made a joke about that on Twitter yesterday. Uh, I've been in my house, this is my fifth day of being 100% isolated uh, aside from my family. And uh, yeah, I can touch my face as much as I want now. That's the upside. It's amazing how much we touch our faces, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and you, you have children. Uh, they are they are homeschooled. Is that correct? Uh, they are now. Yeah. Are they, are, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, is that uh, um, because of this, they were in school? Yeah, and then, they're okay. in public school. Yeah, I have, yeah. I have two boys and they're in public school, but schools are now closed, um, which I really support. I think that is totally necessary. I really do, even though I know it is horrible. Um, I mean, it's, it's no picnic to be trying to work full time and also, 
homeschool your own children full time. And Mm -hmm. also like, you know, I had to lock the door to my office, my office here, which as you can see is actually my craft room, (laughs) um, in order to keep them out while we did this call. So, and, and, you know, I'm very lucky I can work from home and uh, still get paid for it. There are a lot of people who are in much worse positions than I am, but I still think that closing schools was really necessary. And they just got rid of all the standardized tests and everything for the end of the year. They just, it's just now summer vacation or leading to summer vacation. You there? I think the feed broke up a little bit. Yeah, I think the feed feed broke down for a second. I didn't hear that last question, but you're back now. Okay. Um, I was just curious if the school year just ended, like they're getting rid of the standardized tests and the whole thing. They're just calling it a day or they're going to make it up or they're going to go to school Uh, in the summer? It's an evolving situation, right? How long schools are closed is entirely dependent on that testing thing. Yeah. If we could get everybody tested tomorrow and just send the sick ones home, uh, we could open schools next week. We can't do that. That's not feasible. You know, I don't know when we will have that that amount of testing online. In Wisconsin, they have closed the schools. What the word they're using is indefinitely. So mm-hmm. they just don't know. And wow. we get new information every day from the district about what's going to happen, you know, to all the graduating seniors. Are they going to graduate this year? Is there going to be uh, testing requirements? What's the story? So it's evolving. I think they're reacting as fast as they can. It really does change from one day to another. I mean, I went from last week on Wednesday, I was sort of like, ah, this does not look good. This is looking really bad. And by, and I was sort of like, maybe we should consider closing schools locally here in Wisconsin. Uh, and by Friday, I was, uh, I was writing public letters and publishing op-eds to beg people to voluntarily keep their kids home because mm-hmm. I it evolved that quickly. Because they could spread, they could spread it more rapidly. They, they yeah, get it so and don't experience symptoms. Yeah, so one of the things symptoms. that we observe, like I said, this isn't the flu, but it's transmitted. It has similar transmission dynamics to the flu, so we can learn some things about how COVID-19 is spread from studying flu. Because uh, they are both spread by what's called droplet transmission, which basically just means when you sneeze or cough or sometimes even talk, some spit or snot flies out of your mouth and goes into the air for a minute and, you know, it kind of flies along a trajectory until it lands on a surface. That's droplet transmission. Um, so one of the things we know from studying the flu is that kids are the main, they're the linchpin of the of the transmission network. They are the the connective tissue and how flu gets spread. And so much so that here in Wisconsin, when we have a snow day, uh, if you look at the chart that shows how many uh, flu cases there are per day, it's like ticking along in the wintertime and then there's a snow day and three days later it drops down mm-hmm. and then it, it ticks right back up. So you can detect a single snow day. Uh, keeping your kids apart for one day can make a, a detectable difference in flu rates. So that's why kids are home. Yeah, I think I was, I forget where I read it, but they were saying like the uh, Christmas or the holiday break is like one of the best things you could do for stopping the flu. In, yep, uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, one of the things we see that's really interesting for flu is that the Christmas uh, 
the Christmas recess or the, the holiday, the winter break is the general population flu incidence rates go way down, but we actually see a spike among older people. And I think that's because people go visit their grandparents. Mm. Um, one of my hopes here in terms of a silver lining is that all of a sudden the whole world is really paying attention to hand washing. Yeah. If everybody started washing their hands and kept that behavior, we would save millions of lives because flu would be less of a problem. Uh, even if this COVID thing, COVID-19 thing just disappeared magically tomorrow, we could still really learn some important lessons about uh, hand washing from, uh, from all of this and stop the, the seasonal flu problems that we have. I, I believe it was in your, um, the, the piece that you wrote, but this could survive on, on surfaces for, uh, the, the coronavirus can survive on surfaces for 48 hours. Is that, is that right? Uh, maybe even more, actually, we're still learning about this. There was a study that came out since I wrote that thing that suggests that it can survive on some, on, depending on the surface and the, the other conditions like the temperature and humidity, it can survive on some surfaces for four or five days. Wow. And you detect that. I just envisioned in my mind like a black light or something that you shine on it and it just shows yeah. the, the virus. I wish there was a black light. No, you have to do like a sampling procedure and, and find its DNA fingerprints in a lab and stuff. It's a lot more complicated than a black light. But uh, <laughs> there is a terrific YouTube video uh, out there that demonstrates how this actually looks um, from my... Uh, very favorite YouTuber, Mark um, Gerlach? Rober. Okay. That just came out yesterday. You should look it up. Uh, it's great. And it, what he does is he dusts people's hands, kids. He dusts their hands with this black light powder that's meant to simulate germs. Uh huh. And then lets them do their thing in school all day and makes them wash their hands. And it really shows how dirty hands can, can uh, spread disease. You mentioned briefly humidity, and that was one of the questions that I had, and I think that might be a um, possibly a, a misinformation that's out there that humidity or heat will kill this thing. Is that is there any truth to that? Well, so cooking heat will kill it. Uh, high temperatures, you know, like if you cook your food, that that would kill it. But there's really nothing to suggest so far that just warmer weather will kill it. Um, and one of the things we, we don't know yet. I mean, that would be awesome if it just went away in the summer, but, um, but it probably won't. And, and the evidence that it probably won't is that there's a, another genetic cousin out there called mers the Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus Syndrome. It's a, um, another similar kind of outbreak that happened in the Middle East in the summer, you know, where it's like 120 on the regular. So I am not real hopeful that warmer temperatures are going to help. Are there any locations in the world that don't have this or that have not reported cases of this? Yeah, there are some locations in the world that haven't reported cases. Um, and, and I think that could be for two reasons. One, either they, they don't have any cases, they've, they've uh, been lucky or isolated enough to not have any. Like or, North or Korea two. or something? Um, you know, I'd have to look at the map to see, see where those are. I haven't been paying attention to the places that don't have it very much. Mm. Except for West Virginia, which uh, 
as a state, it's the only state that is not reporting any cases yet. And I, I can promise you that that's because they have not done any testing. So that's going to change. It's, it really comes down to testing. I think you were saying at first, when this first started to happen, the testing requirement was different. You didn't, if you didn't, um, if you experienced some symptoms, they, they weren't sending you for this test. Um, Yeah. So, uh, when it first came into the United States, which was like mid February, when we started to see the first cases here, the testing requirement was that if you had, uh, symptoms consistent with COVID-19, which is fever, shortness of breath, respiratory involvement, dry cough, and you had traveled to one of the outbreak countries, then you would qualify for testing. Um, They changed that requirement on March 4th to be anyone who had the symptoms um, could be tested with a doctor's order. But the problem is, uh, and, and I expected that to result in the detection of a lot more cases, and it, it did, but we're seeing this, uh, this bottleneck where we, the tests are backlogged. We can't get enough tests. People are, are not having, tests aren't available. They're not being processed quickly. And so, you know, there's still a lot of outstanding tests out there, and there are a lot of people who can't get tested still because tests aren't available, even if they have symptoms. The people who are getting tested right now here locally, it's my understanding that they are prioritizing healthcare workers and people who are in hospital with respiratory failure. Mm. And so people who just have like a fever, even if they know someone who's been tested positive, they're having trouble getting a test. If you get this and your system builds up immunity to it, can you get it again? We do not know the answer to that. Mm. Okay. Science does not know yet. Stay tuned. If you, I hope so. Okay. I mean, I hope not. I hope we can't get it again. Yeah, me too. That would really be better. Yes, that would. Oh, we don't know. Um, but if you get the flu, like, do you get the same flu again? Do you get like different variations no. of the flu? Is you it get always- a, you get a different variation of the flu? And like I said, the reason you get the flu over and over is because the flu is very messy, uh, and and so your immune system will recognize it if you get the exact same flu virus again and be able to fight it off, just like if you had been vaccinated. But the flu changes so much that there's lots of different flu strains and your immune system might not recognize the new one, even though it's just had the old one. Um, You were talking about uh, countries that were isolated that that possibly or don't have cases of it and i i kind of uh, switched gears in the middle of what you were saying there and i'm just wondering if we could just go back to that real quick so there's there's some countries that don't have this yet and um for various reasons like isolation and and what other uh, causes would there be besides besides that well just uh luck uh so i think some places are have been lucky enough to not not have any cases come in yet. Some places haven't tested anyone or don't uh, don't have capacity to test anyone, and so that's one reason why they're not reporting any test mm. any cases. And then um, and then some places are just isolated, and so they they wouldn't have had contact uh, and travel between them and places with outbreaks so far. So if you. 
are diagnosed with this, what could, you could just stay home. You can't, there's nothing you could really do besides, I mean, does regular cold medicine help? What could you do? Yeah. So most people who get COVID-19 do not have, um, do not have really severe symptoms. They just, it, it feels a little bit like the flu. You know, you have a fever, dry cough, sometimes a headache, fatigue is one of the most common symptoms. Some people have nausea and vomiting. Um, and so you might feel like you have the flu. Uh, you might just feel like you have a little sniffle or you might feel fine. Uh, mm. Most cases seem to be pretty mild to moderate. Right. But but some cases um, and when you add it up over the whole population, it ends up being millions of, of people will have severe shortness of breath requiring hospitalization and uh, support from a respirator and oxygen. And so people and that- a fraction of those people will die of it. So so the recommendation if you if you're sick Uh, obviously if you're seriously sick, you should, uh, seek emergency medical help. Um, if you're just, you know, if you're not feeling well and you, you think you might have it just like anything else, you should stay home, drink plenty of water, uh, get plenty of sleep and rest. And, um, the latest, the other thing that came out in terms of self-medication, uh, management of your symptoms is to, to take Tylenol rather than, ibuprofen, which is Advil and Motrin and Aleve, mm-hmm. um, because there's some really preliminary evidence out there that ibuprofen might actually exacerbate the symptom, the respiratory symptoms. I did read that, yeah. Yeah, it's very preliminary, but it's firm enough that WHO has endorsed it. So that's the recommendation just as of yesterday. If Do viruses stay dormant in the body and then they could come out at some later point? Is that true some of them do okay but i don't know if coronavirus does ever does that or not but um herpes simplex is an example of one that that can stay dormant in the body and then re-emerge later um the virus that causes chickenpox also does that and that's why if you've had chickenpox as a child you can later have that virus re-emerge uh and um and cause uh, shingles. Sorry, my I had a little brain blank there for a oh. second. So the the chickenpox virus stays sort of stays dormant, um, and if your immune system becomes depressed for some reason later on, it can come back out and and you get shingles. So we don't know that yet about coronavirus. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't know that yet. I don't. I'm not sure if anybody does. Obviously, we didn't really talk about it, but I think it's super important. Uh, things people could do to not become, uh, to not get this. So they could wash their hands. We talked about that a little bit, but uh, yeah. Purell, people, Purell is one of the things that are flying off the shelves, you know, that yep. sanitizes. Uh, masks, I've read various things about masks that they, if you if you are sick, you could not get or possibly get other people less sick or you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it doesn't help you prevent you not get yeah, sick. So here's the deal about masks for, um, we don't have enough masks right now because, uh, because we're, um, there aren't enough masks in the country for, or in the world, in fact, for everybody who needs one to have one. 
uh, in the healthcare community. So it's it's very important if you're in contact with someone who has COVID-19, like you're a nurse and you're taking care of them in the hospital, you need to have a mask for your own protection, right? That person is shedding a ton of virus mm-hmm. and we want to prevent those those really high risk exposures from getting the virus um, and limit their exposure. So, so yeah, in a high risk setting, like if you're taking care of a patient who has COVID-19, you should have a mask. Uh, and it would be great if that mask was a, a N95 um, filtration mask. So not just a surgical mask that keeps you know, random things from flying into your face and, but lets lots of air in on the sides, but a a respirator mask. It, for people who are in normal risk situations, like you going to your grocery store and walking down the aisle, a mask might help you a tiny bit, but not enough to make it worth depriving of the nurses who really need them Mm -hmm. from having one. So that's the deal with masks. Um, you know, if you are high risk or you're immunocompromised or you're taking care of somebody who has COVID-19, then you should probably have a mask. But in general, healthy people who are in normal risk situations, they, their uh, CDC and WHO both recommend no mask because there aren't enough to go around. Yeah, I was in the... Gro- One of the benefits of a mask, this is interesting, I just learned this, is that it keeps you from touching your face. It's like a reminder. Mm. It doesn't actually filter the air. It just keeps you from putting your fingers in your nose, right? <laughs> and so, uh, and you could use anything that would remind you to not put your hands on your face. So you could, if if that's helpful for you, you could uh, knit one or make a use a bandana or um, you could, this is something that's helped me, the... Purell that I bought has a a pretty revolting odor. (laughs) And so, and I'm very sensitive to smells. And so I put it on my hands. And then as soon as my hands get near my face, I'm like, oh, that's (laughs) That's gross. So some really smelly lotion might be a good device to remind you not to touch your face. (laughs) Yeah, that, um, hey, whatever works for you. Um, Yeah, yeah. uh, I I was just saying, I went to the grocery store the other day. They had like a, um, I never saw before, like a dispenser with wipes to wipe down the cart before you put Uh your hands on the cart. Yeah. Just things like that. So the basic hygiene things are, you know, wash your hands and do it correctly. That that video from Mark Robin uh, really describes that well, I think. Um, Correctly means pay attention and do it for 20 seconds with soap and water, Mm -hmm. right? Get all the parts of your hands, the backs and your thumbs and so forth. Uh, Don't touch your face because that's kind of the main way that our dirty hands get things into our mouth and nose where viruses like to live. Uh, Clean high touch surfaces, especially shared ones like shopping carts, door handles, um, the faucets on the bathroom sink, uh, your steering wheel, that sort of thing, your phone for sure. Uh, clean those kinds of surfaces with something that will kill a virus, such as uh, most household disinfectants and and uh, just highly diluted bleach is a great solution. And then um, stay as far away from crowds of people as you can to avoid getting an accidental exposure from someone else. And so those I'm- are the main things. I know Purell is a hard thing to come by nowadays. Rubbing alcohol is something that... Yeah, that's the, the main ingredient. ingredient in Purell is rubbing alcohol. And so you can use rubbing alcohol um, or you can... There's some recipes flying around for homemade 
hand sanitizer that uh, I tried one of them. And to be honest, it was pretty weird. It was kind of like <laughs> sticky rubbing alcohol. Nice. Uh, <laughs> that sounds but I. It's on my list to experiment with my homeschooled children and find a better hand sanitizer <laughs> recipe. I uh, actually work for a animal, or I, I volunteer for an animal rescue here locally. We foster cats and kittens with nice. this rescue, and they're trying to sort out how to manage um, transferring animals from one person to another, and they don't have any Purell so to make that happen. So I've got to figure out how to make homemade hand sanitizer for them. But just to uh, understand, that the animals can't, can't catch this right because it did come no, from animals an animal can't but, catch it yeah, but we're worried about the people the catching people that transfer while animals. they're tra- while they're handing off animals yeah gotcha gotcha um what as we're wrapping up are the best and the worst case scenarios for this situation i mean the best case is i mean the best frame? case is that's uh gosh 15 days ago i was hopeful that this would actually happen but now i i think our i think we've I think the window has closed, but the best case scenario is that at this point that everybody really is firm with the social distancing thing, uh, as, as crappy and difficult as it is for the next, at least two weeks and that we start to see case counts drop and that we get widespread, freely available, accessible testing like this month, as soon as possible. Right. And then we will start to see better management of the situation. Um, And at that point, we might actually see case counts starting to go down. And then everybody will be shouting for the next 10 years about how public health overreacted. And this all turned out to be nothing. Hmm. Um, I think that's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario is that this. Well, there are probably two. One, we give up on social distancing and you know, 60 or 80% of the population catches COVID-19 in the next few months. We see a total collapse of our healthcare system. People with heart attacks cannot be treated. People with broken ankles cannot be treated. Uh, Two or three or four million of our people in our population die of it. And another, I don't know how many million would be hospitalized. All those hospitalizations resulted in a bunch of bankruptcies. It's pretty awful. Two, worst case scenario, is that we have to keep on social distancing for such a long time that our economy goes into an irrecoverable tailspin. Hmm. And the poorest people in our country are really forever harmed by that. Um, That, I think, is also a real risk that I'm really worried about. Let's hope those things don't happen. Um, I hope so. I hope we can get people tested soon and quickly. And um, and get everyone there. What would be a sign that we're in a recovery and that things are getting better? I think the first sign that things are getting better is going to be when we start seeing hundreds of thousands of tests per week. And one of the one of the things we'll find when we test hundreds of thousands of people per week is a lot more cases. So for a while, case counts will keep going up, even though we're doing a better job of management. And then eventually, we'll start to see case counts going down. And it's the too too early to tell when or if that scenario is going to play out. Yeah, it, I have no idea. Hmm. Um, as as 
you know, we're ending here. Is there anything other information that people should know or, or websites people should check out or uh, any other information or advice you can give to anyone? There's a lot of, you know, right now it's just people are, I think, inundated with information, but a lot of it is really alarming. And uh, that can be good in the sense that it's, you know, making people stay, realize they need to stay home. But, um, you know, what, what would you leave people with um, as as we end the yeah. conversation. So there's a lot, I think that what I would leave people with is that there's a lot of, of misinformation flying around out there. There are a ton of rumors. I think the people at Snopes are almost as busy as the people at CDC right now, just trying to combat the, the bad information that's mm. flying around. So, you know, go to a reliable source for, for good information. WHO is a good one at the risk of self advertising. I, uh, along with a few colleagues have started a Facebook page where we're trying to promote factual information called dear pandemic. Um, and the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, don't, if you, I think if people are feeling panicky and, and their mental health is suffering, just, uh, you know, you know what to do, what to do is stay home and keep your hands clean. Uh, and just unplug from the news. I, I think it's unhelpful to just stay glued to the news constantly. You know, it just they they're selling a story. They want you to keep watching, and so they will make it seem um, it is dire. It is really serious, but they will make it seem they will they will. Um, I think they promote fear in sure. order to get listeners right and viewers. And yeah. so, I think people who are feeling really panicky and having mental health trouble should turn off the news and call a friend and reach out for that social connection that they are lacking right now. Yes. And, uh, you can go outside, you could walk your dog or you could take a walk yeah, outside totally. and get some sun. Even and, recommended. Yeah. Well, Malia, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know you get a lot of requests and, um, you know, this, this is been super, really, really informative. I think a lot of people got a lot of information on this uh, situation um, that you know could be really helpful to them. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I look forward to hearing it. All right. Awesome. Hang in there. Peace out, Transmodians.